Mindset Athlete Podcast and I'm your host, James Roberts. I'm a two-time Paralympian and owner of James Robert Fitness, which is an online training, nutrition and mindset coaching business. First of all, I'd like to thank Lauren Williams for suggesting this quote to the show. An athlete is a mindset. It's how you prepare, think and execute. Not because of some elite status or physical stature. Anybody can be an athlete. By Chris Hart. And each week on the Mindset Athlete, we like to bring you inspirational athletes, a message or experts talking about human optimization to teach you how to change your perception of your mindset and become 1% better. And on today's show, I've got Matt Kubler. Matt has always lived a life of sacrifice and dedication to others, from serving in the U.S. Army to working as one of Pennsylvania's most renowned police officers, donating his time speaking to teens and young adults about the importance of leadership in their lives. He has devoted his life to helping others for both personal, professional and personal life. So welcome onto the show, Matt. Thank you. I'm, I'm really excited. I know we've, uh, we've been Facebook friends for a while and uh, we follow each other and, and participate in each other's uh, social media, but it's really cool to finally get a chance to talk to you. That's very humbling for you to come on. So beyond the initial introduction that I've given you, what's a little nugget that I may have alluded to that you'd like to share with my audience? I'm a, I'm a guy that, that refuses to, to miss anything. Like I don't want to not do something because I'm afraid that that's what I'm going to be remembered as is the guy that just, I may have done all these other things, but I didn't do that one. And I don't want to be that guy. And you know, tomorrow is in promise. So everything I do is based on the understanding that whatever time God gives me on this earth, I have to make the most of it. And uh, so whether it's, you know, growing up with an autistic brother who, who stuttered profusely in a single parent home and living in poverty or becoming a cop or serving my country or um, being Tim Tebow's bodyguard, as we just talked about before we came on. Um, I always want to make sure that if I see an opportunity, an opportunity that is going to not hurt me um, or anyone in my, in my close knit circle, then I'm going to do everything I can to try to make that happen. So um, I'm driven, but I'm driven because I want to live a life that benefits others and that people will remember. So what drives you and inspires you to keep pushing forward on, on that basis then? I alluded to it in the beginning. Um, I lost uh, my older brother, Andy, um, who's my only sibling. Um, Andy was three years older, but growing up, I was the older brother. Um, Just his autism. And back then it wasn't autism because there was no such thing. Um, He was just considered mentally retarded. Um, And his stuttering, which was actually the thing that I think debilitated him the most, was his inability to communicate. Um, His eyes would roll in his head. His face would contort. It was just... um, as an outsider looking into it, it's awkward. It's, it's difficult to be around when that's happening because you don't know what to do. Um, but it's 1 million times more difficult to be the person that's suffering from it. So, um, my brother's death in 1989, when I was 18, he was 21, um, a month before I went to, to, to serve my enlistment in the army, um, devastated me. So, and when you lose somebody that you're not prepared or had any, ever thought that it would ever happen that 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 person could not be in your life. You know, we were kids at no point in time was my brother didn't have a medical condition. He didn't, 
have some cancer or, or anything else. He, he died in a car accident. And it was so traumatic to me that um, I couldn't cope. I couldn't manage that loss because I had always pictured my life with my brother in it. And, you know, I actually envisioned myself being 48 today, having my brother living with me and hanging out with my kids and my wife. And he would just always be part of my life. That's just the, the future that I had envisioned. And when that future was no longer possible, I went into like this, this circle of anger and hatred and resentment and um, self-hating um, because I, I just, I couldn't come to terms with his death. And now that we, you know, PTSD is a, a, a hot button topic and everybody wants to put them in, in a combat category, but the reality of PTSD is just simply a trauma your, your mind couldn't process and it puts you in this loop of, of depression, of darkness. And knowing that today and knowing what I went through, I, I, without a doubt, went through PTSD because I knew I was in it. I knew that there was a problem. I knew that I was unhappy. I knew that I was angry and that I had rage issues and that I hated myself and I hated God. And, uh, but I couldn't figure out how to get out. And when you're in that loop, it's a very um, frustrating place to be. Um, I was doing all the things that I, on the outside that people would expect me to do being in the military and serving my country and doing all those things and became a cop and met my wife and got married and had a child. And all those things look like the typical progression for someone of, of my stature and who I am. But on the inside, I was just suffering and I couldn't feel um, love or joy or, or any of those things. So it just sort of was this horrible, nasty, filthy, place that I was living in every day. And, um, in 2002, I was, I, I call it God's grace. I was shown God's grace, um, in the form of a quilt <laughs> of all things. And, and I'll explain that in a second. Um, but in 2002, my son was born and I named him after my brother and there's no better or worse. My, my kids are equally the most amazing things in my life. There's not one that's better than the other or, or one's birth was more important than the other. It's just that where was I inside my own mind at the time when it happened? And, and I didn't want to have another child. My, my wife had convinced me that having another child was um, what we needed as a family. My wife, God bless her. God bless her. She, she knows me and she's patient with me and she um, puts up with me and, and trusts me. And I, I, her. Um, and when she said this is the right thing, I trusted her. And we had our son, Andrew, and uh, a couple months after he was born, we had family over. And the week my brother died, I was, my mom and stepfather um, were on vacation, and my brother was staying with my grandmother, and I was staying with friends, going to work where I, in a different town where I worked at. And the week that he, he was with my grandmother, she had, was doing his laundry and all those things. Well, you don't think about what do you do with someone's clothes? <laughs> when they're no longer there, but my grandmother kept those clothes for 13 years and turned those clothes into a quilt that she gave to me a couple months after my, my son was born. And to say that that was the most impactful thing in my life would be an understatement. And it it seems odd that it would be a quilt and a quilt would be the thing that gets me to change um, my mindset. But it was the first time I had something tangible with my brother, like something I could hold. It was almost like I could feel him. I could smell them and like, it just brought this feeling of comfort. Um, I guess kind of like a little kid when they have their blankie, you know, it's like, it was a comfort thing. I just felt this, this, 
protective comforting feeling. And, uh, that night I went down to my basement office and I, uh, I wrote, I wrote a lot of amazing memories about my brother, the most vivid, clear memories as if I was reliving them all over again. And I sat there with that quilt and I cried and I wrote and I did it all night long. Literally didn't come back up until seven thirty the next morning. And when I came up and I tell the story all the time, um, when I speak and when I do my podcast, when people ask, I saw, so when I come up my basement steps at the house we were living at the time, it was right across from the window in the kitchen. And that faced the east. So the sun was coming up. And when I opened that door, it was like this brilliant, the brightest light and color that I've ever seen. Like I, I, I can't, I can't describe it any, but it was, it was like, um, pure. It was like, um, it was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And I just remember thinking to myself, God, that is beautiful. Like all those colors and all the dust and the colors of the, the sunlight coming through the glass. And I'm like, and I thought to myself, I said, why haven't I ever noticed that? Like, why is this the first time I'm going, wow, that's amazing. And I had lived in that house for a few years. And, and I just didn't understand why I hadn't seen that before. And, but it felt this, this weight lift off of me when I wrote all those things that I wrote. And I came up the next morning and saw that sunlight. It was almost like this cleansing moment in my soul. And when I said I wrote, I wrote 26,000 words um, of memories in one night. And that's a lot. So to put it in context, you know, a, say a 200-page book, a standard-sized book, is about you know, 80,000 words. So I wrote a quarter of a book in one night. Um, and I, I called my mom, who's a retired English teacher, and I said, Mom, I wrote 26,000 words about Andy last night. Um, what do I do with it? My mom says, you write a book. And I said, no. I didn't mention this, but I was not a reader growing up. Um, I may have read an actual, like a grown up book, one between ninth grade and, and the 2002. So, you know, in 1985 and 2002. And uh, it was Animal Farm. I don't know if it George, George Orwell. Mm -hmm. um, that's the only book I remember ever sitting down and reading the whole thing. So I'm like, well, all right, well, I guess I better start reading because I don't know if I can write a book. <laughs> And I don't really know what a book structure should look like. So I, I read a bunch of books and uh, I realized that I could write one because I didn't have to set up scenes or, or doing like that. I was just sharing my life story with my brother. So in 2006, I published, um, so four years later, I published uh, my first book called A Brother's Love and Memoir. And uh, it's just the dedication to my brother. It's our life story. And it's the single greatest thing I've ever done in my life. Um, and it saved my life. The, the quilt opened up something inside of me that allowed me to feel again. And mind you, I wasn't a hundred percent better um, for lack of a better term uh, when I came up and saw that sunlight, but I could feel this, this pressure leaving um, this, this anger dissipating. And over the course of writing the book over four years, it allowed me to really just come to terms with a bunch of trauma that had happened in my life, you know, from my dad leaving when I was nine months old to, my mom remarrying and me wasn't, I wasn't prepared for that. And our brother's issues and growing up in poverty and being picked on myself, like all these things just sort of, I worked through during that period. And, and it just allowed me to become a better person. And that moment of getting that quilt started me on this journey. I'm on today. And to answer your question, which was quite a while ago, since I've been on a little bit of a dissertation here, but what fuels me 
is my brother. And the fact that, you know, I spent 13 years angry over the fact that I thought my brother was taken too soon and that my brother didn't have a chance to live and that he deserved that chance because he had struggled for so long and he was just starting to come into his own at the age of 21. And I thought my brother just didn't get a chance. Like, why would God do that? And the funny part or ironic, I guess, is that after writing the book, I found out that my brother every summer would go to camp and he worked at this Christian camp and he cut grass and did hedges and a bunch of odds and ends stuff. And he would stay there all summer. And I didn't go to this camp and I didn't have any insight into the experience my brother had other than what he would tell me. And it wasn't a lot. And, but it turns out my brother lived an amazing life and impacted thousands of people and changed lives through his love and purity to, with others. And after writing the book, I got to meet all these people who wanted to learn more about my brother, the backstory to people that had kids that go to camp or other camp counselors or anybody that, that had contact with my brother. And there, I found out people named their kids after my brother and that he had a gymnasium built after in, in his name, like all these amazing thank yous to my brother because of the life he lived that I wasn't, I, I only knew my brother as the person I had to protect. He was the, he needed me to do that. That's, that's my, that's who I was. That's what our relationship was. I didn't know about this other stuff and I wish I had. I really do. I wish I certainly probably wouldn't have been as angry as for as long as I was because I would have been, I would have had some peace knowing that my brother lived the life that he was meant to live. And, and that's what motivates me. I don't ever want anyone to ever wonder the life that I lived. I want people to know the impact that I made in the world. I want my, I don't ever want anybody to help. When my brother died, and, and it, it's so weird how you all go, you go back in your thoughts, and you're like, why, why didn't I see this? But at his funeral, I have a messed up family. We don't have a lot of connectivity. We don't talk much. There's not a lot of cousins and aunts and uncles. We're all fractured. But at his funeral, there were a thousand people. And I remember thinking, who the hell are all these people? And why are they here? And it, I never put two and two together because I was so stuck in this angry cycle that I couldn't see the stuff that was right in front of me and answer the logical questions of who are these people? And well, I have to find out. And I never looked to get those answers. And had I just looked a little harder, I probably would have found them a lot sooner, but that's the beauty of life. And that's what, you know, when I say God showed grace, he finally said, all right, enough's enough. It's time for you to end this cycle. And, you know, my grandmother keeping my brother's clothes for 13 years is an amazing gift. I don't know why she didn't give it to me when I got married or when my daughter was born. I don't know why and nor does it matter anymore all i know is i'm here now and and i had god's grace and it allowed me to have the ability to share what was in my heart with others so that now everybody knows my brother i wrote that book in 2006 it's still selling today people are learning about my brother and they're loving my brother and they're being inspired by his life and his um, amazing story and and that's what fuels me is to continue sharing my brother so that he never has to worry about, you know, his name not being uttered. But if we go a step further, Matt, do you think in your opinion now, um, people can actually not overcome an, a traumatic experience, but be a, actually prepare themselves for it. The inevitability of something happening it doesn't have to be death or be, be, can you truly actually 
put steps in place to actually make yourself to a certain extent ready for something like like that that to actually ever happen? Oh, absolutely. I, I tell people all the time, I, I always wanted to be a cop. I always wanted to, I have, I've had a hero complex complex since I was six, literally since I was six. And I've always dreamt of every moment that I could possibly have as a cop or in the military SWAT, chasing bad guys, doing all those things. And I've been around a lot of trauma in the last 30 years. Um, I've seen more death than any one person should. I've had um, shooting situations. I've had someone commit suicide right in front of me. Um, I've seen babies die. I've seen like things that you should never want to be experienced. And I have zero trauma from that because I prepared myself all my life through visualization and, and mental preparation for the fact that this is what I was going to do. This was going to be my life. I prepared myself for that. And I think when you have people that are um, in the military that have PTSD, I would, I would venture to bet that they were predisposed to that prior to enlisting or, or going into the military. Number one, number two, that they didn't do, they didn't have the same visualization and mental preparation for what they were going into. Um, because if they had, they, they wouldn't be as traumatized from what they saw. War is ugly. Combat is ugly. That happens. If you don't know what it looks like when someone gets shot, you need to figure that out in your brain because that's what your brain will automatically revert back to is what it knows or has seen in the past in order to help manage whatever's happening in the present. And, and I've worked vigorously to try to make sure that in my profession that I'm prepared for those things. And with my brother, I just had never in a million years would have thought at 21, he'd be driving home from work and die. Just never, it never occurred to me. And the, the feeling of loss and that feeling of what now and what do I do? And, I, and I, I've come to realize that what I was searching for all that time was purpose. Growing up, my purpose was every day my mother would say, make sure your brother's safe. Take care of your brother. Don't let anything happen to your brother. Those were, it was this constant mantra in our house that I couldn't let anything happen to my brother. And when he died, I lost that. <laughs> And I tried to figure it out through joining the military and becoming a cop that if those, if I could serve and protect others, that that would fulfill that purpose. And it didn't because I needed that, it, that um, it's almost like a divine purpose. Like I'm on this earth to help others. But I, my brother was the, the, the nucleus for that and he was gone. But when I realized he wasn't gone, I just could repurpose that, that nucleus that my brother's story and what he did throughout his 21 years, I could turn that into my new purpose, which is sharing that with others. That story, someone in every room I've ever been in relates to either my mom or my brother or me or other people that were part of this story. They can relate to it. They can relate to my mom having to raise a special needs son and a pain in the ass son and me who on her own in poverty, working three jobs, like someone can relate to that. And I think that's the beauty of, of being a, an inspirational speaker is that I not to say that the people that have tragedy, tragedy, like, you know, lost vision or, or, or had a limb lost or something like I, not everybody can relate to that. That's a, that's an, that's an audience that's got to come. I mean, inspiration is inspiration, but people may not be able to relate to what you might be going through or someone else might be going through. My story is not unique to me. Losing a family member is not unique. Everybody does. Not wanting that person to be gone, everybody feels that. 
there's millions of single moms out there raising kids. So, I mean, the story that I tell is relatable to a bunch of people. And I think being able to share that so that someone can find a piece of hope or inspiration from it is literally the purpose repurposed from what I was doing with my brother. So would you say from a purposeful perspective, Matt, that you've kind of in the realms of the, of the meaning of the word hero's journey, do you think you've really encapsulated that in your life then? It's everything in my life. I don't, I don't live my life any other way. And it's been that way since I'd say 2006 officially is when I really started to intentionally think about um, not only my own personal gifts and what I'm able to provide as far as my understanding of human behavior, my understanding of body language, my understanding of telling a story. Um, and I didn't even mention that my brother, you know, if you think about it, my brother was, was autistic. He had social lots of social issues. He had cognizant issues, meaning he could memorize the Bible, but can tell you how many pennies run a dollar. Um, he stuttered profusely, which I told you earlier was probably the most debilitating thing because it, his face would be toward his eyes, rolling his head. It was, it was just, he couldn't say sentences and, and the more stress he felt, the worse it got. So I had to understand what he wanted and needed at all times. I could finish my brother's sentence every single time, no matter what situation we were in. And, be right. And my mom would say, you got to stop doing that because he'll never learn to talk on his own. And I would say, well, he's, he's struggling and he's hurting. I don't want him to hurt. So I, I finish his sentences so he can have a little bit of relief from that stress and struggle. And what I figured out through the course of my life is that being able to do that with my brother, I was, I became very keen and aware to minor changes in his body language and his facial expressions, um, precursors to him having a, a massive stuttering attack like his ears would get beat red. Um, his eyes would become really wide. Uh, like things like I just picked up on. So now as a, as a cop and then when I was working army intelligence and I can see minor changes in people's body language and facial expressions and understand what those mean. Thanks to my brother. And I, I didn't even know I had that gift <laughs> until it started becoming real easy. And I'm like, why do I, why am I good at that? And then I wrote the book and I realized that I spent my entire life doing that just with my brother, not with outsiders. So I wake up every day intentionally going, how do I impact the world today? What are the opportunities? I have plenty as a police officer every day. That's all I do is, is impact lives through either responding to calls for emergencies or interacting with people in the street and holding a door for somebody or giving a fist bump to a six-year-old or whatever the case might be that I have opportunities every single day galore to impact the world. And even if it's just the world that I'm, I'm surrounded with. And then whether it's social media stuff that I put out, I intentionally put everything out. It's not just a whim that I put this post or that post. I intentionally put stuff out because it's important for people to have um, positivity in their life. It's important for people to have things that are relatable. Um, so for me, it's, it's an intentional thing I do every single day. But would you not contest that kind of working in the the police force is, is kind of um what's the word is eluding me now a thankful thankless job now because the, to a certain extent respect isn't there that that used to be there oh without a doubt i um i don't enjoy being a cop in the traditional sense i've always been I, let me lead with this I am not a conformist. I am a contrarian by nature. I go against the grain 
every single time just by my nature. If you tell me to go left, I'm going to go right and get to where I'm going to go and say, you know what? I got there. That's just how I'm built. I joined the military and I made the military fit me. I didn't conform to the military. I, you know, I may have said, okay, I got to wear this uniform. It's got to look this clean. I got to do this. But basically I made the military work for me. The police, I made the police work for me. I found my, my areas of expertise and I, I did the hell out of those for a long time. I'm doing that now. I'm making police work work for me. I, if you told me I had to go out and, and chase down bad guys and, and be a SWAT guy again and, and do all the things that require the microscope to be placed on me, I wouldn't do it. So now I just go out and I, I make people's lives happier being a cop. I solve problems in unique ways that may not be um, the traditional way of handling things as a cop. And I'm lucky enough that my department allows me to have that latitude. They understand my, my abilities and the things I'm very good at, and they allow me to work within those. So I, I don't enjoy being a traditional cop anymore, but I do enjoy what I do every single day because I have a chance to control that environment on some level. Granted, there's stuff that happens that you're not in control of, but um, I've got 30 years of experience, and I can pretty much um, unscrew any situation in five minutes if given the time. And obviously the, the, the answer that you gave me in terms of the military are quite interesting to hear because you saying you're not conforming to the military, people were a little bit shocked to hear because you would think the nature of, I haven't been in the military per se, but be, from a family perspective, that, that actual, and I'll give some context for my audience as well, that actual realm of profession stopped at me, It'd be a, a few generations before me have done military service. But in terms of actually go and actually come to my point, that's their whole intention is to make you conform and be one, 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 uh, one unit from, from basic training. So how do you kind of conform, but not conform? Well, <laughs> let's just say I, I certainly um, learned the value of, the military, when you decide to go a different direction, has ways of making you go the direction they want you to go in. Um, I'm not saying I didn't go through the struggle of I went a different direction and there was, a, there was consequences to that. Um, ultimately, through those consequences, through those learning processes, I learned the back doors, the ways to get around, the, the, um, how to utilize what they wanted me to do to benefit me and the people around me and then also benefit the military in return with what I was doing. I was army intelligence. So it's a different kind of military than say going into special forces or anything like that. It was a more of a, uh, I'm going to say laid back, but less militant form of the military simply because of the type of job we did. Um, but you know, I had to go through basic training and you know, I, the first day of basic training, I tell the story all the time. Um, you get there and I, I know you've never been in, in the military and let alone the United States army, but you get on a cattle truck and they take you on this, it's literally an old cattle truck that you have a duffel bag on your back and a duffel bag on the front. And you arrive at your, your base training station from the reception station and drill sergeants are just screaming directions, orders, and they're all telling you something different. And, and you listen to one, it's the other one that wanted you to listen. You, it's just complete chaos. One of the things they do is, is they make you do inventory of your personal, effects. So you have your 
your stuff you came into the military with from home. One of the things I had um, when my brother died, um, I buried my class ring on, I put it in his hands in the casket and I took his class ring and I, I started, I wore his class ring. And uh, I went into the military with that class ring and you have to divest yourself of all jewelry, um, any personal civilian level type stuff. So they're like, you got to give me that ring. I'm like, you're not getting a ring. They're like, oh, we're getting that ring. I said, I can promise you. The only way you're getting that ring is if I'm dead. So eight hours later of me doing flutter kips, push-ups, jumping jacks, running in place, um, so much so that it got dark. And they brought me into the hallway outside of the captain's office. And the drill sergeants, all the drill sergeants were in there with the first sergeant, the lieutenant, and the captain, discussing what to do with this non-conforming um, soldier, while one drill sergeant just give me commands, up, front, back, go, like just constantly just this cycle of, of hell. And the captain came out and stopped the, the torture, and he said, uh, we need to talk, and pulled me in. He goes, you're not giving us that ring, are you? I said, you can kick me out of your army. I said, but you're not getting that ring. And I explained to him why. And I said, my brother is more important to me than your rule. I said, so you do what you got to do, but you're never getting this ring. Um, so they conformed and they allowed me to wear it on my dog tags. So it wasn't visible um, to anyone else. I learned that there's only so much they can do to me. <laughs> they can't kill me. I figured out what the game was and I knew where I could push and pull in certain things, not in a manipulative way, but things that, that were, if I were to have a choice in the matter, this is what I would do. And I was able to figure out ways to do that. Um, I had a couple more similar, not so pleasant incidents while I was in the army. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, the army, I made it work for me. And I actually would have stayed in um, another four years had it not been for um, some political changes in the environment that made my, you know, they cut the military in half, which makes getting promoted harder. So um, I didn't see a way for me to continue to progress. So I got out. Um, and I don't look back on that with regret or anything, because I am where I am because of what I've done thus far. So, um, but yeah, I, I made the military work for, for me, even though, even though I, I had to go through some, some trauma, <laughs> Um, at the hands of, of drill sergeants and, and people who were in charge of me, at the end of the day, um, the military was everything I wanted it to be when I went out and decided to join. Would you agree with me with this statement then, Mark, that it's more instead of manipulation, ingenuity in terms of what you utilize then? I, it might even just be stubbornness. <laughs> I don't know, but I, I know what I think I know, and, I, and I'm very – very convicted in my beliefs. Um, I have a set of principles and, and ideals and moral code that I live by that I don't, I don't adjust for anybody. And I know what I'm capable of. I've always been very self-aware of, of the things that I can and cannot do and where my talents lie. And if I felt my talents weren't being used, I'd find a way to go use my talent. Um, because I felt that's where I was going to be my best. And that's where I had my best chance to have success and other people to have success because I was good at what I did. So that is, that's more so why I was able to be, make the military more 
fit me versus me fit the military because I think stubbornness, self-awareness, um, and then figuring out ways to use my talents. Um, cause the military, no matter what anybody says is meant to get people all pulling the rock, the, the rope in the same direction. Um, I always pulled in the same direction. I just wanted to pull a different rope. <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't want to be on, I didn't, you told me to pull that rope. I'm like, I'll make my own way to get there and I'll help you get there, but I'm not doing just because you told me I got to go do it. So that's just, and it's always been that way. And that's, it's been the frustration of many of my superiors. Um, but when I pull them aside, I say, listen, I need you to trust me that this is, this is how me getting me to do this is going to be best for everybody. You'll probably like the, the, the idea that it's jumped into my head from, from what you've said, said, Matt, it's, it's a little bit of uh, a little bit like tug of war. You've gone and gone and get a truck and attached the rope to the truck. I, yes, <laughs> I have. I've always been a problem solver. And if I don't see the problem being solved in the right way, and I know with, without a doubt that my way is the right way, I will figure a way to do it that way. And um, I rarely fail. I, I don't fail. Um, I may make missteps along the way, but I ultimately I get to where I'm going. I always do. And that's just, that's just because I, I, don't, I don't like anyone ever saying, told you so. Um, I started, and I'll give you an example. I'm, I'm a, an entrepreneur. I hate using that word, but I am um, because everybody's an entrepreneur, right? Every, that's the new catchphrase. Um, I started a company with, with another guy in 2009 called Max Out. And we have made every single blunder and mistake you could possibly make in business. Number one, we opened a business up in the fitness business during a recession in our country. Not a good idea. Secondly, we listened to a third partner we had at the time who was a, uh, who I've known since I was a, a younger kid. He was always the kid that manipulated people into believing stuff. And I allowed myself, this is the one time that I allowed myself to be manipulated by another person. Um, I believe that as long as he was doing his part and like I, 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 when I became an entrepreneur, I didn't believe in myself as a businessman, but I believed myself as a problem solver and a, a get shit done guy. So I figured if I just stick to my stuff and I stay in my yard, we're going to be successful. He can do his stuff. I do my stuff. We never cross pollinated. And what happened was he ran roughshod and, and a lot of bad things happened with our company because of stuff he did. Um, we made decisions that, that should have never been made. We decided we were going to franchise our, our fitness business. Horrible mistake. Um, we spent a lot of time, years and money um, trying to franchise. Um, we had a piece of technology that we owned that was amazing that, that allowed us to do what we do in the gym that's different than everybody else, but we couldn't make it. It was so expensive to make and so impossible to sell as a secondary stream of, of revenue to sell the equipment that we couldn't make any money. We, we constantly were, we're, we're constantly giving discounted equipment to people to get them to use it in prominent places and losing money. And never figuring out how to then make money by making it cheaper or, or, or whatever. Um, until 2013, when we decided we were going to um, try to be smarter, and we we brought in some engineers and we reworked the the functionality of the existing technology, and we patented a new device, and we have three patents. And so for the last four years, we've been making no money, but doing, and we've never made money. I'm gonna, I'm gonna lead with that. We're now. Finally, in year 11, we're starting to make money. Imagine that. 
10 years of, of being in a business of making mistakes, but knowing that what we do in the gym every day, as far as helping people and getting them stronger. And there's 200 pro athletes that use my equipment that I can't promote because I'd have to pay them. And we don't have any money. <laughs> there's uh, I help people with neurological neuromuscular disease walk again, or use a body part again. Um, TBIs, paralysis, you name it. We do amazing work in the gym, but we couldn't figure out how to make money at it. Well, finally, we're now 11 years in, we're starting to make money because we went and made the decision in 2013 to be smarter, invest the money in, in technology and developing this technology and getting the patents, and then spending the next four years doing R&D to make sure that it works and that we have a, a flawless piece of equipment. So now we launched our company in May and we're starting to make money because we did it the right way. But that's that perseverance. That's that I never fail. I may mess up along the way, but if given time and the, and the ability, I will succeed because I refuse to lose. I just do. I just will not lose. And I'm thankful. My business partner, Jason, you know, he's the financial arm of our business. And thankfully, he believes in me. <laughs> thankfully, he believed in what we do every single day in the gym. Or else we would have never lasted. No matter how much passion I had and no much how much um, lack of failure I, I, I believed in, if you didn't have somebody financially backing the project, it would have failed 10 years ago. Um, but that's, that's the way I live my life every, in every aspect of my life, parenting, marriage, it doesn't matter. But where does that mindset come from though? Where, where's it, where's the roots? I'll call it a trigger, I, but in terms of my mom, my mom is, uh, my mom's amazing. She is 75. Um, unfortunately she is suffering from Alzheimer's now and, uh, which sucks by the way, that is a horrible, horrible, horrible disease. Um, she took two boys, turned them into men through, um, her love, unconditional love and her passion for caring. Like there is never a moment when you're around my mom. When you don't feel her, her love. And she wants more for others than she ever wants for herself. Um... Okay. My mother worked three jobs until I was 12, um, which left me, and it was obviously a different time. We're talking about the seventies. So my brother um, and I spent a lot of time, we, we had babysitters, but a lot of time we spent by ourselves and we didn't live in the nicest places. So we had to become self-sufficient in a lot of areas because my mom was out working her ass off trying to make sure that we had clothes and food and a place to live. And that ability to improvise, adapt and overcome has kind of just been in my DNA. Um, thanks to my mother's ability to no one's going to ever outwork her. No one's going to ever out care her. No one's going to ever out love her. And, and I learned that from her. And I just think that that resiliency, that, um, zeal for, for finding answers to problems that, 
that yeah, was a single parent with a special needs kid who was um, always having issues. And uh, me, I was literally, I, I could have been Billy the kid for Christ's sake. I mean, <laughs> I was, I ran roughshod a lot of times. I wasn't, I was a 4.0 kid. I was very smart. I loved my family and my brother. I protected my brother, but I did a lot of stupid shit, man. <laughs> I, I spent a lot of time doing street level stupid shit and learning through that too. And I think as much as that's not something to be proud of, I do believe my street knowledge and understanding of, of many different aspects of that world, that it's helped me become a better police officer, a better parent. Um, you know, I can see 10 steps ahead of my kids. Um, you know, I'm not, I didn't live a sheltered life by any stretch of the imagination. So, um, but my mother is, is without a doubt the most inspiring, amazing, um, example to follow that I could have ever had asked for, um, in my life. But do you also think Matt, that the area that you, you grew up in, in terms of being Philadelphia and Pennsylvania is bit, to a certain extent is hardwired in that way as well? Oh yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, <laughs> you look at the, the Philadelphia sports and, and the passion that we have for that and how you know, we're renowned for, you know, billing, uh, throwing snowballs at Santa, like that, that's kind of like what we're known for. And it's, it is, it's a real thing. And, and we wear it as a badge of honor. It's uh, you know, you don't come in our house <laughs> and, and, and make a mess because you're going to have to deal with that. And uh, you know, it's a blue collar mentality and I'm, I'm always going to be a blue collar guy. Um, no matter what my title is or position I hold, I'm still just a kid from Pottstown, Pennsylvania who, um, didn't have it easy growing up and uh, people, and that, when I said, I don't like being called an entrepreneur because everybody equates entrepreneur with, with uh, taking risks and then having the financial reward from taking those risks. I consider myself an entrepreneur only because there's no other title for it, but I don't give two rats asses about money. I never have. I granted, I got to make money to, to support my family and, and provide those things. I get all that. But when people say I get judged by a lot of other people in, in the, in the industry, because I don't have an economic driver. I don't, I've had many opportunities to make a lot of money doing things that I don't give a crap about. And because I don't give a crap about it, I'm not going to do them because I said earlier, I don't compromise my moral standards and the things that I believe to be uh, my ideals, my ethics. I just don't just to make money. Um, if I can't make money doing the things I'm passionate about, then I'm going to change lives doing the things I'm passionate about. Either one's a good outcome for me. I don't care. I don't, I didn't become an entrepreneur to make money. I became an entrepreneur because I thought it was what fit me the best at that moment, that, that independence, that ability to, to be a free thinker, to build something from nothing and make it mine instead of always trying to conform out of whatever the conforming thing was I was doing at the time, whether it's the military police trying to make it fit me. Um, it gave me an opportunity to make something that I had my hands in that I created that is now mine. I have my name on three patents. I have a piece of equipment that I, I helped create that no one in the world has ever done. I did something that's never been done and I'm going to go dominate it because that's now where I'm at. And this is what is in front of me. And this is the mission I'm on. And I don't care if I make money <laughs> and that's the, that's the, the difference between me and everyone else. And I had one, I'll, I'll lie. I do want to make a little bit of money. So 
I made a promise to my wife. I said, if you trust me and we go down this path and it's been tough financially, it's been tough. Um, you know, it's hard to be a single source income provider. My wife's a stay at home mom, which we decided many years ago that our kids were going to be raised by our family, my, my wife and me, we weren't going to outsource that. And, uh, financially it's been a struggle for the last 21 years since we've had kids. And, but I told her, I said, if you trust me with this, the max out project we're on and, and all these other things I'm doing, I said, I promise you the only, the only thing I care about is that one day we can take a vacation and not put it on a credit card that we can pay cash. That's it. That's the only goal I got. Cause I don't, I think I'm still paying from Disney in 2002 on my credit card. I'm pretty sure that's still there. Um, interest wise. So I want to be able to go on vacation, just pay for it and then enjoy it. And that's the only financial goal I really got. And it's not because I don't have a value for money. It's just that if, when given the choice between impacting the world or making money, I'm always going to choose impacting the world. And if somebody says at that same time, you're going to get paid. I'm good. Thanks. But it's not, I'm not going to choose money because it's my driver. I'm going to choose it because it's part of what I'm doing. It's my passion to help others. Do you think to a certain extent, the, I'm not, I'm not going to call them out on this, but in terms of the younger generation, be it because it isn't put in that position from a social media perspective that people have lost sight of that, be it they, they can't see what is black and white, be what is materialistic and what is making an impact. They kind of see it as a blur. Yeah. And I think there's probably 50 different impacting reasons why that's the case. Um, but I, I have to look at, you know, I've had a saying for 30 years that 90% of the world's problems caused by piss poor parenting. <laughs> so that's just the reality. I, I think everything, everything that you do in your life, I mean, you have intrinsically some, some indicators in your, in your brain that, that make you who you are, but most of what we do in our life is a learned behavior um, through our experiences and exposure to different things. And, you know, how else do you become politically one way or the other? How else do you um, become racially against one or another? You know, it's all learned in um, environment. And you know, I, I was blessed to have a mother who is um, loving, caring, giving. Um, we never had money. They still don't have money. Um, but work ethic and, and the value of hard work and providing and doing things for others. That that's a learned behavior. And I think today's society, we got, we got so stuck in the competitive nature of my kid versus your kid in the sports world or in the, the classroom or wherever that we, we make adjustments to our moral and ethical standards to allow for what we believe to be the right decision at the time to benefit our kids so that they get the leg up. Well, I've learned that my kids get the leg up by watching me. My kids learned how to excel and achieve and, and put into time and studying and understanding the value of love and respect for everybody. And, and that problems aren't solved with your fists unless it's the last resort. And, um, and I have a saying, we don't, I've never started a fight in my life, but I finished many. And my kids have the same mentality and that they, it's that I'm tough, but I, I care. I don't want to have conflict because I want to have peace and harmony in my life. But don't get me wrong. If I have to go conflict, I'm going to go conflict. But it's the last resort. And that's a parenting thing. That's something we chose to do is to give our kids those tools so that they can cope and manage in all different environments. Not the, you know, I, I have kids I mentor. I mentor 
hundred kids in the last 10 years. And the thing I try to teach them is that life isn't perfect and life isn't designed by you. It happens to you and you have to adjust to most of it. And if you don't know how to adjust to it, you're going to get lost. And then you're going to be constantly trying to get out of the quicksand and having that ability to adapt the improvise, adapt, overcome mentality is a learned, trained, practiced, intentional process. It's not, um, it's not just life. It's life isn't social media. Life isn't instant gratification. You know, sometimes you got to put 11 years in before you make a penny like I have. Um, and you only can do that if you believe in yourself and you know what your strengths and, and weaknesses are. You have a passion for what you're doing and you intentionally are working towards improvement every single day. And I think you deal with that all the time with your, your mindset podcast and the, the things you post and the, the videos, the, the lives that you do. That's all about that overcoming adversity and figuring out how to adjust and adapt to an ever changing environment. I've lived, I've lived all over the world. I've seen a woman stoned in, in Saudi Arabia to death. That's not normal in my world. It's completely normal there. <laughs> How do I adjust? If I had to stay any length of time, how would I adjust to that environment? What would I need to do internally to make myself fit in and, and acclimate myself to that environment? I think that's, that's a missing component in today's society, especially in the youth, is the ability to adapt and adjust. Um, if things aren't the way they expect it to be, they quit. If it's not immediately gratifying, it's not worth it. And I think that is a, um, that's a cultural mindset shift that has to happen with the next generation. That's why I go and talk to kids more than I talk, talk to adults because adults are stuck in their, their ways. They have their own beliefs and I can't undo however many years they've been alive, but I can tell you that I can get a, a, a seventh grader. And if you give me five years with a seventh grader, that kid's going to go to college completely different than had I not had those five years with that kid. But what, what do you, what do you do though, in terms of actually getting somebody to change though, in terms of that, that, is it, does it come down to that beast that for a certain amount of time we, we kind of went away from competition altogether and, and, and gave people trophies for the sake of it? Is it down to that state of being, oh gosh, over the last 10 years, I think it was, is it come down to that's what's caused that spiral? Nobody has to fight anymore. Nobody has to work hard to have success. Success anymore is, did I get something for my effort? You came in ninth place. Here's your trophy. I never lived in a world where ninth place got trophies. <laughs> I live in a world where the best, so I'll give you an example. My daughter, um, I am not an athletically, naturally athletic person. I don't have the ability to run fast or jump high or throw far or move heavy objects just naturally. Everything I've done in my life, I've had to train for. Everything I've done in my life, I've had to work extra hard for because that's just, I know what my limitations are. My daughter is a, um, an all-American swimmer in college. Um, people look at her and they go, oh my God, she's amazing. If anybody had a chance, if I could just give you a, a bird's eye view into my, my daughter's daily routine and what it takes for her to be great, you'd be exhausted just watching it. She never won a race in first. So in swimming, I don't, I don't know what you know about swimming, but swimming at a meet, there's heats. There's the slowest heat to the fastest heat. And you can win a heat, but you, may, you probably won't win the race, the overall win. But you win your heat, that's great. 
my daughter never won a heat, let alone a full race until midway through her ninth grade year. So when she was 15, she's 21 now between 15 and 21, she's built herself into an all American, not because she's naturally gifted at swimming, but because she figured out the effort required to be great is X. And in order to continually improve upon X, you've got to constantly add to the process. So she created a process that I helped her create and that we did together that has been um, unequivocally the most important part of her life. And she uses it for her academics. She uses it for her decision-making. It's the same mental approach to understanding what I can and cannot accomplish through hard work and effort. Because if you don't have natural talent, the rest is just going to come down to hard work and effort. And she's figured out how to do that. And I do that with all the kids I work with. And it starts with understanding who you are. Like, what is your natural strength and weakness? parameters. What are you naturally good at? And what do you naturally suck at? I'm a firm believer that if you're going to do something you suck at over time, you might get marginally less sucky. And that's not enough. <laughs> if you're going to spend time on anything, do the things that you are, are average at and become good and the things you're good at and become great. And if you're great at something, you've got to work extra hard to become amazing. From average to amazing is where I, I, I spend all my time with kids. Because a lot of times when you're average at something, it's not because you suck at it. It's because you don't understand how to do it yet. You don't understand how to attack that problem. And naturally inside of you, have, you may have the mechanisms in place to do that. And I think that's 90% of, of the, the problem with today's society is no one has ever challenged these kids and, and young adults to figure out who they are. Are they spending their time wisely? Because a lot of kids are doing things they suck at and getting trophies. So therefore, they don't have to get better. And it's not about sports. It's about life. It's about how do I dominate life? How do I make life the most amazing component ever so that when I'm done, people come to a church and they all stand up and tell me what I meant in their life. Like, how do you live that life? And it's all about creating processes that are geared more towards your strengths than they are your weaknesses and managing your weaknesses so they don't take over your life and cause you to have lack of success. Ultimately, that's what it comes down to. And that's a process that that's an intentional mindset shift and an understanding. It's a taught learned thing that you, you, if you get a kid early enough, they're going to use that for the rest of their life. I'm going to weddings now of kids I've mentored when they were in middle school. You know, I got, I've had I have three this summer for kids I mentor. I got another one next month down in Virginia I'm going to. And these are all kids that are so successful in their life. They, they know how to adapt. They can handle relationships. They know how to have a, a good, healthy relationship with another person because it requires dialogue, it requires communication, it requires empathy and understanding, and then expectations. I'm going to set my expectations for this relationship. My wife and I, when we, when we met, people make fun of me, but we had, we created a list of response areas. I call it the AOR, areas of responsibility. My wife has never turned on a lawnmower in 25 years. You know why? That's my area of responsibility. <laughs> I don't clean the house. Why? Because that's her area of responsibility. If I'm a firm believer that if you don't have expectations and, and set those expectations and communicate them and have an agreement, you can't have blame. And if there's no blame, there's no conflict resolution. Someone's got to be at fault. There's no, oh, well, it's not, I didn't know. Enough. Someone's at fault in everything. If there's conflict, you've got to find a way to get resolution. The only way you have resolution is one person accepts responsibility for their actions. If the toilet's not cleaned, I was cleaning the bathrooms for many, many years until I started having 17 jobs. 
if the toilets weren't clean or the bathroom was dirty, my wife would be like, when are you going to get that bathroom done? <laughs> I'm like, you're right. I'll be on it this week. The grass is high. So I'm like, did you look out back yet and see how high that grass is? You're right. I'm going to get on it this week. Conflict resolution, accepting responsibility. And I think without that, if it's constantly someone else's, then not me, you know, I have my, yeah, you, I'm, you don't have kids, do you? Mm-mm. So yeah. when you have kids, you go to these parent teacher conferences or right. I tell every one of my teachers, you will never hear. It's not my kid from me. I don't care what my kid did. If it was something that caused you to call me, my kid and I are going to have a problem. <laughs> I don't care what the context was, why it happened. If you called me, I loan my kid to you for seven hours a day. I've trained my kid how to act that way. <laughs> act normal in school. Be someone who is participating. Do well, blah, blah, blah. But if you have to call me, I'm never going to say not my kid. And we have so many parents out there that refuse to acknowledge that their kid messed up. And they will say, oh, no, no, not my kid. I can't tell you how many times I go on a call as a cop. And I'll say, I need to talk to you about Johnny. Johnny went and did this. Oh, there, there has to be some mistake. Not my kid. Well, actually, it is your kid. So now we've got to figure out how to fix this problem. And that's the mindset that we need to change is that people can learn to have accountability and responsibility. 99% of the problems can be fixed. But where, where is that um, conflict arisen and what, what to certain decades had that? Sh- I, I'll, I'll coin it as a fork in the road. If, if everything would have been on equilibrium and, and, and stayed as you talk about, would have gone left, but instead the world's gone right. What, 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 particular marker would you put that on hmm. i'm gonna have to say the advent of social media i blame myspace i think myspace ruined it for everybody um the the advent of social media made it so that you can live one life publicly and privately have another life and you know i remember when i was a kid you know information was not instantaneous if the Philadelphia Phillies were playing the Los Angeles Dodgers in Los Angeles and that game was a nine o'clock game, I wouldn't know what happened with that game to the late edition of the newspaper the next day. There was no other way for me to get that information. And now I know every pitch that's pitched as it's pitched, where it was at in the strike zone. Was it a slider, a curveball, a fastball, how fast it was? Was it high or low? Did he swing and miss? Whatever. That's all instantaneous. And when you create a, a, a habitual environment of instantaneous gratification. That's when things changed. When there's no more um, research required, when you can hey, hey Siri, who was the lead singer of the Eagles in 1976? You know, whatever, when you create that environment, when the instantaneous gratification is now the only option and hard work is no longer the, the, the first choice, that's, that's when the shift changed. And I think, getting kids to understand um, the value of that, the, of the hard work of the process of the understanding why things happen and how to get to, to solutions of, of problems is a lost art. And when I mentor kids, that is one of my main focuses. You know, I, I do an assessment of them. I figure out where they are and, and what do they know about themselves? And I guide them through a discovery process about themselves and then we start to take the things that they learned about themselves and grow from that. And, and that's not, that's not a quick process. It takes time. And, and it took me a long time to get that, that trust level in the community that I live in to being good at what I do started with a lot of 
uncertainty from parents who, who I started working with their kids. And it all started with me training them at Max out at our, our gym. And once you start training somebody and you produce a physical result and that translates to wins or, or better performance, then all of a sudden they're like, so you know, I, I broke up with my, my boyfriend today and you know, I don't know what I did wrong. And okay, well, let's talk about it. And then all of a sudden you start helping them work through problems and, and finding solutions. And all of a sudden it's like, can we, can we talk once a week just so I can talk to you about things? Yeah. So it just was this long, it was probably a two year process to where I was able to, to create my own. Cause I was just doing it on the cuff off the cuff, but to create an actual process based on the experiences I had over those two years to working with kids that allowed me to come up with this process I use now that it works every single time. Um, and it's just, sometimes it's faster with some kids than others, but ultimately if given the amount of time I need, they'll get it. And I but, think that's, that's part of it. But obviously this is going to be a hard question for you to answer now, Matt. How do you do that on a mass scale though? in terms of that changing actual way of thinking completely? Yeah, I haven't figured that one out yet. Um, <laughs> so what I did was, I, it's kind of like franchising, right? So a franchise is, and a lot of this came from failing in that, that regard, you know, not, not being as successful at, at opening franchises, but having to create the process of what max out franchise was going to be, it taught me how to think in that space and understanding that every little detail, like I can't not put turn on the lights as part of your opening process. Cause what if I have a moron running a max out in Topeka, Kansas, and he never turns on the lights because it wasn't in his operations manual. Right. So having that, that mindset and understanding what it's going to take for as far as the minute detail, the, the micro um, allowed me to start to really use my actual gifts of, of understanding human behavior and, and kids and stuff. And, and create a process that is so micro and macro at the same time. And I realized when I was I initially thought that I was going to go into schools and, and work with schools and, and mentor kids. And I'm really, thought, I'm never going to have, I'm literally going to be the most busy human being on the planet. There's no way that's going to work because I can't franchise me and I can't create me to be in other places. I hadn't, I hadn't yet figured that out. And then I came up with an idea that, um, Basically, it's the same thing I did at Max Out. I, I don't know what it's like in England, but in, in the United States, you know, college athletics have what's called a strength coach. So the strength coach is by far the most vital component to any college athletic program. With, and they spend the most time with the kids. So every athlete, if you ask any athlete who went to college in the United States and if they had a strength coach, who the most influential coach they ever had, they're going to say it's a strength coach because strength coach challenged them, put them in uncomfortable positions, forced them to adapt to environments, forced them to overcome, forced them to, to change their, their mindset on how to train their body and what they put into their body, all those things. And that's kind of what I was doing at Max out with these kids when I was producing a result for them physically so that they could become better in their sport and have more success, which led to them opening up to talking about their personal lives with me. And I'm like, all right, well, how do I utilize that same mindset of a strength coach at the youth level? Well, now there's a movement going on where high schools are now starting to recognize that you can't just have your football coach print off of something on YouTube and have some kids use it in the gym and expect any type of safety or results to occur. So there's now this movement where schools, especially in the, the more urban, um, larger public schools that are hiring strength coaches because that's a requirement now in order to have, you know, on the lawsuit side, if you have a kid lifting weights and they've had no instruction and they drop a barbell in their face, you're going to get sued. Um, so then I, I decided right, I'm going to start talking with strength coaches because they're intrinsically already kind of wired the same way I am. 
they want to give and, and see kids get results and hold them accountable and all that kind of stuff. So I created this program that uses a strength coach as the nucleus for my leadership program. So I have a couple of schools out in Pittsburgh using it um, that it's, you know, still in the beta phase. So it's, it's still a work in progress, but ultimately my goal is to have my program with the strength conditioning program at any given school that will allow them to utilize um, the leadership principles and the, the human behavior and understanding how kids' minds are wired and then the strength and conditioning side as well. So it's like a 360 degree, you know, body, mind, wellness um, approach to, to kids. Well, I think that's probably the best way of doing it because I think to a certain extent, um, at least what we have alluded to within probably the fitness industry it was based on the aesthetics and to a certain extent the nutritional side of things and that was it the mind was left to it to its own devices and i think now with this 365 degree that you talk about in, encapsulating the mindset and how you operate i still think some people still find it difficult to oh well, how how does that have an effect on what i eat and how i exercise but it does because it's it's centered on habits and behaviors. But it, you've got to come back to that root cause of te- obviously guiding somebody and giving them the knowledge to be able to be aware of that. And, and if you're not taught that, coming back to what you talked about, you you don't know you don't know how to deviate and kind of um, find your way through those those difficult times. Resiliency is huge, and I, I just think that's. I mean, like I said, there's probably 50 reasons why there's problems in today's youth and, and the, you know, up to like, I don't know what the millennial off cutoff date is as far as when they were born, but you know, people in their twenties are certainly uh, having some issues with, with adapting to the big, big boy, big girl life. Um, once they get out of school or whatever they're doing that, you know, there's a lot of kids that are just lost that, that haven't figured out their way and no one's really giving them the tools to figure it out. So um, it's harder to to train somebody when they're 25 than it is when they're 15. And it's just they, the, the length of experiences that, are, that you have to deal with, that you have to undo in some cases um, and retrain is just hard. So you, know, the, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. You can, but it's just going to take a lot longer. And uh, I prefer to, to go for the path of least resistance sometimes and but you know, I have resistance at the school level, like the district level. I don't get a lot of, a lot of invites because no one wants to admit there's a problem. No one wants an outsider to come in and address the problem. Um, but I'm smarter than, than most of them. And I find ways to get there. And you know, my hometown of Pottstown, um, I'll give you an example. So Pottstown is a very urban um, crime ridden area outside of Philadelphia. And it's my hometown. I love it. I love everything about it. But it's got its problems. There's disconnect between the community and the police. There's you know, gangbangers and drug dealers and businesses have left and it was shutting down. And um, it needed someone to go in there and, and start with a slow process. It's not a quick fix, but start getting the, the next generation of kids to be more aware of, of what's happening in their world and how can they change it. And... Um, I tried to go into my hometown and do that. And I was told, no, they don't want the six foot three, 250 pound bald white cop coming into the predominantly minority school and telling them what they should be doing. They didn't think it was a good idea. I disagreed. Um, 
but rather than be stuck in with a no, I found another way around it. And now I have a guy I've been mentoring since seven, eight years ago, who is the, the, the right person to deliver the message is now in place in Pottstown is working in the school district, mentoring kids, um, changing the dynamic of the community, creating after school programs, um, impacting Pottstown businesses are coming back, new businesses, you know, the kind that you want in your town are coming back. Um, there's more communication between law enforcement and community. The government officials are more having more buy-in. He's bringing this whole thing together and it's all because I got told no. So rather than forcing me into the situation, I found someone else and guided him through it. So it's, it's not about um, one person making the difference, being the point person. Sometimes that person's got to go back into the, the background and, and help through support versus being the, the front person. And, and I had to learn that. And it wasn't my first choice. I would love to be the person doing that because I like being hands-on, but I also like seeing someone who has the passion and understanding and the purpose and the love and the right uh, mindset that I'm supporting going out and doing that. I have, I think just as much satisfaction doing that as I do had I been the person in there doing it. Would you, and this is probably my penultimate question to you then, Matt, is this something that the, the, the people of today need to learn to take that backward step and be in the shadow as opposed to, we talk about instant gratification and what social media is putting you in the spotlight. Uh, it's realizing it's not all about you. You can sometimes get the same amount of success from being in the shadows. Yeah. I think it just comes down to being able to solve problems and, and being willing to set your ego to the side in order to see a thing, a problem with a full vision and seeing where you can find solutions to the problem. And I think, a lot of times in our school districts, we have such a, you know, I tell this um, to a lot of people that school by its very nature is exclusive, is exclusionary. It just is. They, they may say you're all in one building, but once you're in there, you're put into different categories. You're in the band, you're in sports, you're smart, you're special ed, whatever. They put you into a box. Everybody gets a box. And there's multiple people in each box, which is how they call it inclusive. But the reality is you're just excluding a bunch of people and putting them in a bunch of different boxes. Very few people are cross-pollinating into different boxes. And I think that in and of itself is a mindset change requirement, is you have to create an inclusive environment in school that allows everybody to see everybody for who they are and let kids figure out, based on their strengths and weaknesses, what areas of specialty they want to go into, but not exclusively put them in that box, allow the kids to have a school wide box that they can participate in that allows them to see kids from different cultures, different backgrounds, different socioeconomic situations that allows them to see the world in a much broader vision than the small little box that you put them in the minute they show up in school. And that is a, a mindset mindset shift that has yet to happen. Schools are not willing because of their ego and their pride and their, their um, Camelot mentality that forces them to believe that if we let people know we have a problem, then that means we aren't good at what we do when they're not, one is not determinant of the other. You can be, have great teacher teaching kids and molding minds and doing all that stuff and still be very exclusive and do things that aren't necessarily helping kids too. It's when you, when you take a step back and you look and you go, I'm not doing everything I should be doing as an administrator of the school 
we need to figure out ways to do it better and then find those solutions, whether it's internal or external. That's the only way that this whole thing changes. Matt Kubler on his own isn't going to make that change. But if you create an environment like we're doing in Pasadena and then you say, how can I then take that and put it in every single school across the country? That's how you do it. So my final question to you, Matt, before we wrap up the episode then is how to, for, for, I can't say it. If you had to summarize what we've been speaking about today into one sentence for people to take away, what would that be? Hmm. That was a little straight left. I wasn't prepared for. Um, I would say that if, if people could learn to um, be more self-aware of who they are and understand where their talents and strengths can help the greater good of the people in their, their environment, the place, wherever they live or work, that providing that expertise, that knowledge, that, that, that strength in your community is going to help then increase everyone else's strength and ability to, to solve problems. It's, it's not a one-person problem. Life isn't a one-person problem. It's a, a community problem. And if everybody works towards um, sharing their strengths and their, their talents with the greater community, everybody sort of feeds off of that. And that's what I've, I've found the most rewarding is when things that I, I say or do for another person helps that person then figure out within themselves what their strengths and weaknesses are. And then they go and, and share that too. So it's that pay forward um, mentality. And it's not just by holding a door, buying a coffee for somebody. It's about sharing your gifts and talents with the world and inspiring others to do the same. So once again, Matt, thanks again for coming on the Mindset Athlete Podcast. It's been a pleasure, man. I've An hour and 10, 15 minutes has blown by without even blinking. So that, that's always the sign of a good show. I appreciate you coming on. If you like this episode, please do share it with your friends and do let Matt and I know what you thought of the episode by tagging me over on Instagram at jamesoroberts11. And again, you can do the same on Twitter and Facebook. And finally, do check out his website, mattkubler.com. That's M-A-T-T-C-L-U-B-B-L-E-R.com. And as always, do check out my free content at fitamputee.co.uk and click on the tab free resources. Make sure to check those out. The links will be in the description. You can find all the show notes at mindsetgame.lipson.com under the category general. So once again, thanks for listening and I'll catch you next week for another episode of the Mindset Athlete Podcast.